The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. you doing today. What a lovely day it is. So glad to be here with all of you. Uh, I hope you like our new setup. Uh, this is the new, new webcam. I'm here at at my studio, at, at the office uh, where I, I previously streamed, but now we're looking at it through the fancy new webcam. Uh, you can see the hallway over there. You can see our lovely, totally, totally real painting uh, behind us. Uh, let me just get it going on Rockfin also. Make sure we're going on Rockfin. Yep, we're now live on Rockfin also. Wow, what a lovely day it is. Welcome, everybody. Uh, be sure to hit the like button. Be sure to hit the subscribe button. Be sure to hit the notifications bell. Uh, yeah, this is our new setup. First time we've done it here in the studio. So it's very exciting. So glad to be here and talk with all of you. Uh, it's a lovely, lovely afternoon. Um, and um, I'm just going to have a little afternoon chat with all of you. Uh, that's kind of the plan. I've got plenty of unnamed diet beverage. It's been a lovely day. I was covering the UN Security Council meeting earlier today, in which we saw, well, we'll get into that later, but hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. Now be sure, be absolutely positively, absolutely positively sure uh, that you um, you go ahead and um, and post this on Facebook, post this on Twitter, and post this on Reddit. Uh, we're, you know, post this everywhere videos are posted, uh, post the link, post this in Facebook groups, post this on Rockfin, post this on, on, uh, Prol Wiki, uh, post this on, uh, on what is it? Bunker Chan and Lefty Pole and, and Instagram and Twitter and make it a Facebook status and post it in a Facebook group and send it to your Facebook friends. We are having an afternoon conversation. Uh, just a little chat here before I head home for the evening. And later tonight, you know, if you're sticking around this channel, uh, you're in the right place because later tonight, uh, I will be streaming with my good friend, Daniel Burke of the Schiller Institute. We are going to have a chat and that's going to be awesome. Uh, Daniel is always fun to talk to about international events, about economics and such. So we're going to be streaming later tonight and then tune in Wednesday. Because Wednesday, we're going to be recording yet another episode of Moppin' and Brar in Conversation, where I speak with the founder of the Communist Party of Great Britain, Marxist-Leninist, Harple Brar. We're going to be having yet another, our third installment of our podcast together will be out Wednesday morning. Won't that be awesome? So we're going to hear, I'm going to be talking to Daniel later tonight. I'm going to be talking to Harple Brar. So many good things happening. Welcome, everybody. Hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. So glad that you're here. We are having a lovely afternoon. So the way this works uh, is I give my opening remarks. And then after I give my opening remarks, uh, we do the roll call. And then after that, I answer your super chat questions. I, uh, I will be typing your super chat questions as they come in. So if you have a super chat question, just shoot me a super chat. And in the second half of our program, I will answer that super chat. That's how it works. And I'll be sipping unnamed diet beverage, and it's going to be awesome. Good times, folks. Good times. Hit the like button. Hit the subscribe button. Hit the notifications bell. So 
you know, we've been talking about the danger of war and the danger of a new war. And uh, today there was a UN Security Council meeting that I covered earlier. Uh, the United States got up and made its ridiculous allegations against Russia, claimed Russia is on the brink of invading Ukraine. Russia made clear they are not on the brink of invading Ukraine. They have no intention of attacking Ukraine. Uh, uh, they ripped the allegations of the United States to shreds. Uh, it was a pretty bold Security Council meeting. Uh, but we've talked about that quite a bit on here. And I'm going to talk about Russia and Ukraine a little bit later with Daniel Burke. Um, but what's interesting is I thought it might be worth looking into history. Right? Today is the 31st of January, the final day of the month of January. So I was looking through world events to see what has happened on the 31st of January in history. And believe it or not, today is the 54th anniversary of when the U.S. Embassy was stormed during the Tet Offensive in Vietnam. 54 years ago today, the U.S. Embassy in what is now called Ho Chi Minh City, back then they called it Saigon, was stormed by revolutionary anti-imperialists who wanted to reunify their country and achieve their national liberation. The U.S. Embassy in Saigon was stormed by communist revolutionaries, guerrilla fighters with the National Liberation Front. So, you know, 1968 was the year. It was 1968, and the USA had been gradually escalating its military involvement in Vietnam. And Lyndon Johnson, the U.S. president, was looking at the war in Vietnam and thought, this is an unwinnable war. And he didn't see a way out. And eventually, he decided not to run for president again because he knew that he couldn't withdraw from Vietnam because they would never forgive him for that politically, but that it was an unwinnable war. So he ultimately quit the presidency. Lyndon Johnson quit the presidency because he saw it as an unwinnable war. And the events of January 1968, that was an election year, you have to remember. The events of January 1968 were huge. So out of nowhere, right? Vietnam is celebrating its Lunar New Year. It's called Tet. It's a Buddhist holiday in Vietnam. And uh, the U.S. government didn't see it coming. The CIA didn't see it coming. Uh, U.S. intelligence didn't see it coming. Nobody saw it coming. But out of nowhere, out of nowhere, the Vietnamese people suddenly just had a huge upsurge against the United States. Uh, uh, at the time, I believe there were there were there were forty three provincial capitals in in Vietnam at the time. Thirty six of them, thirty six of them were struck in South Vietnam. Um, that was that was big. All right. More details on the upcoming Texas. More details on upcoming Texas event. Not a convention. It's an event, but we'll talk about that. Super chat is written down. And it was just this huge upsurge. And they had been able to sneak uh, explosives into the, uh, into the capital, uh, into Saigon. Uh, it was, it's now called Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, they were able to sneak them in under the guise of holiday fireworks. Um, and they seized uh, the U.S. government radio station. And they seized different parts of, of the capital. And one of the one of the places they seized 
on today, January 31st, 54 years ago, one of the places they seized was the U.S. Embassy. And, uh, you know, U.S. soldiers were killed. Uh, they stormed into the U.S. Embassy. They barricaded themselves into rooms. There were, you know, firefights, shootouts that went on for hours as the Vietnamese people seized the U.S. Embassy. And there is so much that people forget about the Vietnam War. People don't know anything about it, right? Um, but one thing uh, that, that happened, and, and again, I even found it was hard to find this on the Internet, um, you know, but it's, it, was, it happened. It certainly happened is that after, after the U.S. troops retook the embassy, uh, the U.S. embassy, and there were, there were, you know, some, there was a, a handful of U.S. military personnel were killed retaking the embassy. They executed all of the Vietnamese employees of the U.S. embassy, all of them. They just lined them up and shot them. Uh, many of them had nothing to do, nothing to do with the attack on the embassy. There were a number of Vietnamese people who'd been hired to work at the U.S. Embassy in Saigon. And after, you know, after the, uh, the seizure of the embassy by the, by the National Liberation Forces and the Vietnamese, uh, after that, you know, they, they determined that some of the embassy workers, um, right, Bloody Sunday, Future of the Irish Struggle, After that, uh, they determined that, uh, that some of these embassy workers had been collaborating with the Vietnamese National Liberation Front. And so they lined up all these Vietnamese people who worked at the U.S. Embassy in Saigon and declared them all guilty, basically. Guilty until, you know, proven innocent, uh, you know, uh, and lined them up and shot them. Right? And again, you wouldn't know about this uh, because, you know, they don't talk about the ugly history of the Vietnam War. But there were a number of U.S., you know, of Vietnamese people who just happened to work in the U.S. embassy that were executed, you know, by the U.S. military after the Vietnamese seized the, uh, seized the, the, the embassy. Uh, it was a horrendous incident, um, but it was part of the Vietnamese people. It was kind of a turning point, right? People remember the Tet Offensive as a turning point in the Vietnam War. How does one decipher what is a legitimate bottom-up movement? What is a counter-gang bottom-partism? Uh, it was a horrific, horrific act of retaliation. And many places during the Vietnam War, you saw this. I mean, we know about the, the My Lai massacre that took place, but that was just one of many different horrendous atrocities. There's a very famous photograph of a South Vietnamese soldier shooting a man in the head, you know, just executing him right there on the street. There were many instances where, uh, where, where civilians were slaughtered, uh, just taken out and shot. Uh, there's that famous photo of the of the of the girl running naked with napalm on her, the little child running naked with napalm on her as a result of the U.S. atrocities. There was horrendous bombing uh, that took place during that war. Uh, I mean, you know, the Tet Offensive, the turning point in Vietnam's struggle for national liberation. That was a big moment. 
And it had a huge impact in the United States because there had already begun protests in the United States against the Vietnam War. But those protests got bigger. Uh, 1968, the fact that January of 1968 is when all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the Vietnamese people were just rising like a mighty storm against the United States, seizing the embassy, seizing U.S. government radio stations, seizing Capitol buildings. Uh, U.S. soldiers were dying like suddenly at a much higher rate. The Vietnamese suddenly had this huge, huge surge in resistance to the United States. And uh, the anti-Vietnam War movement got stronger. A lot more people in the United States said that they wanted to protest against the Vietnam War. They didn't want to go. And Americans were being drafted. You have to remember, Americans were being drafted to fight in Vietnam. Um, and 1968, uh, you remember that the U.S. president in the aftermath of the Tet Offensive said he didn't want to run for president again. He was not going to accept the nomination of his party for presidency. Again, Lyndon Johnson saw the Tet Offensive and said, you know what, I don't want to be I don't want to be president. Uh, I don't want to lead this war anymore. And so, so the Democrats had to pick a new candidate. And there was Robert Kennedy, RFK, was running. Uh, and he was opposing the Vietnam War. And he got shot. And he was assassinated. And, and uh, Eugene McCarthy uh, was running as the anti-war candidate, the peace candidate. And uh, Hubert Humphrey. Uh, who had been a big supporter of the civil rights movement, but supported the Vietnam War, ended up getting the Democratic Party's nomination for president in 1968 at the Democratic Convention later that year. But outside the convention, there were riots in the streets. Uh, people went out in the streets and fought uh, heroically and then got beaten up by police. Uh, the Chicago Democratic National Convention of 1968, was, you know, there was a huge, huge protest movement outside, former CPSU official. Claims Turkmenistan is one of the, you know, the few, I have no idea. I have no idea. I can't comment on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was a big moment. It was a big moment. That year of 1968 is also the year that Columbia University was shut down by a student uprising led by Students for a Democratic Society. Mark Rudd, who later went on to become an ultra-left adventurous terrorist with the with the Weather Underground organization. Uh, he was the leader of students at Columbia University who shut down their university, protesting uh, the building, uh, the building of, of, of you know, military research facilities. In fact, they were gonna evict a number of African-American families from Harlem to build military research equipment at Columbia, and they, they shut down the university in 1968. Uh, 1968, later December of that year, um, or no, I guess that was 1969, a year later, that's when Fred Hampton was killed. Um, and it was, it was quite a year, right? 1968, April of 1968, right? This is January of 1968, January 31st, the 54th anniversary is today, was, was when the U.S. Embassy was seized during the Tet Offensive. Later in April, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, right? In April of 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, was in Memphis, Tennessee to support striking workers. He was on a picket line, right? Uh, he, he wasn't actually physically on a picket line. He was at his hotel, but he was in Memphis, Tennessee to support striking sanitation workers who were demanding better pay in the city of Memphis, Tennessee. And he was in his hotel and he was shot down by a sniper's bullet. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was killed on the picket line. Don't you forget it. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. fought against racism. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. worked to pass the Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act. 
But in the final years of his life, Dr. Martin Luther King dedicated himself to socialism. Look it up. In the final years of his life, Dr. Martin Luther King called for democratic socialism. He said that capitalism is failing and that the United States needs to move for, toward what he called a democratic form of socialism. He rejected Marxism. Uh, he said that Marx was incorrect in his interpretation of Hegel, but he maintained the United States needed to move toward democratic socialism. And you should go read his Beyond Vietnam speech, the speech that Dr. Martin Luther King gave at Riverside Church, just, just up the street, you know, pretty far up the street, up in Harlem from here, I'm in Midtown, but the speech that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave condemning uh, the Vietnam War, a powerful, powerful speech given by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, condemning the Vietnam War and saying that capitalism and, uh, and racism were the, were the cause of, of the problems in U.S. society. Um, and uh, welcome, Peter. Welcome, Peter. Glad you're here on Rockfin. Um, and it was, it was a powerful speech he gave linking the Vietnam War to capitalism, uh, you know, saying that the Vietnamese people had basically had the right to resist U.S. imperialism, even though Dr. Martin Luther King was a pacifist. He said, how am I supposed to go and tell young people, uh, young African-Americans in the United States not to riot when the biggest purveyor of violence on the earth is the U.S. government? I mean, read this speech Dr. Martin Luther King gave condemning the Vietnam War, this powerful speech that all over the world, uh, people are rising, people are rising um, against U.S. imperialism and, you know, and rising out of poverty, and we must support these revolutions in the United States. I mean, Martin Luther King in his final years was becoming a revolutionary. He was becoming a revolutionary in his final years. And, uh, and then April of 1968, just a couple months after the, uh, the upsurge of, of the Vietnamese national liberation struggle, um, you know, um, I, I really can't comment on that to heat me in fire. But at, just, uh, just a couple years, uh, just a couple months after that, uh, he was, was killed in April of 1968. And then after Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated, almost every single major city in the United States went up in flames. There were urban rebellions in, in New York City. There were urban rebellions in Washington, D.C., just a few blocks from the White House. There were urban rebellions in Los Angeles. There were urban rebellions in Oakland, California, and all across the country, Chicago, people, African-Americans largely took to the streets and fought the police and the National Guard was sent in. And it was a national state of emergency with rioting happening in every major city in response to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., a man who had advocated nonviolence, uh, being killed, being murdered. And at the time, there was almost universal feeling uh, that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had been killed by the U.S. government. Now, if you tell that to people, people roll their eyes and say, well, that's not possible. But at the time that it happened, almost everyone felt that Dr. Martin Luther King had been killed by the U.S. government. Mao wrote a statement in support of Dr. Martin Luther King um, that you can go read. Mao Zedong wrote an official statement after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, uh, good books on intel agency involvement with cults and new age religions. Very good question. Books on intel agency involvement with cults and new age religions. Very good. Um, and that was very, very powerful, that statement from Mao Zedong. And yes, the, the Tet Offensive had a huge impact on U.S. society, on U.S. history. It was a huge moment. The fact that the Vietnamese people, uh, 
you know, that they just surge out of nowhere. They, out of nowhere, it seemed like, right? Things in Vietnam were continuing. The USA was gradually putting more and more troops in. At first, the USA said it was only sending trainers, kind of like what they're doing now in Ukraine, right? They were only sending instructors. You know, they were not sending combatants, but pretty soon, yeah, the USA was sending troops and combatants. And then, you know, and then, you know, as the USA is gradually getting more and more involved in this war, and then out of nowhere, January 1968, the Vietnamese people just explode in resistance. It was powerful. How do you recommend approaching the topic of Christ, socialism, and conservatives from the Bible Belt? All right. Okay. So, I mean, it was quite a, it was quite a moment. Um, and, uh, you know, and Michael Moore and, you know, Michael Moore, he's kind of become a little bit of a shill for the Democrats. He used to be a little bit better. Um, but, you know, in his autobiography, uh, one thing that he remembers, I thought this was interesting, is that he remembers he was a teenager at the time that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was shot a few months after the Tet Offensive in Vietnam. Um, court sent my grandpa to Vietnam for having weed, right? Joe Rogan outstripping mainstream media. All right, we'll write both of those down. Uh, and uh, at the time when Michael Moore was a teenager during the Tet Offensive and and the night Martin Luther King was killed, he says he went to church uh, in his little town. Uh, kind of a suburb of Flint, Michigan, that he lived in. And he went to church, and as they were walking out of, of church, there was a guy who had been out in his car heating up the car, uh, and the guy had heard on the radio. And as people were walking out of the church, the guy shouted The guy shouted to everyone coming out of the church. He said, they just shot Martin Luther King. And this crowd of white suburban Americans applauded and cheered for the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, Michael Moore often tells that story, um, and it's in his autobiography. And that shows at the time in 1968, there were a lot of people who hated Dr. Martin Luther King. They thought he was a dirty communist. He was a traitor to the country. He was disrespecting our troops by protesting. He was calling for racial integration, which was a communist plot or something like that. The right wing, they hated Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, Tucker Carlson's left flirtations. Remember, at the time, we, we think of the 1960s as being this very radical period, um, but that was not the case for the broader population. Uh, in African-American communities, there was definitely a period of radicalization. It's a period where the, the Black nationalist movement was very popular, where there was strong anti-imperialist, anti-government sentiments among the Black community. And among college students and intellectuals, uh, there was a big upsurge of people opposing the Vietnam War. But among middle America. Uh, you know, you know, middle America, there was still a deeply conservative America, my country, right or wrong, love it or leave it sentiment. That's one big difference between now and the 1960s. The 1960s, you know, sure, there were radical college kids, sure that the black community was ready to fight against the oppression that they suffered. But among the broader population, there was no interest. Now, among the broader population, there is widespread anti-government sentiments. Uh, it's a very different atmosphere. 
because the economy is collapsing. That labor aristocracy, that layer of well-paid workers who were loyal to empire and identified with U.S. imperialism is being broken down. Uh, you know, you know, things that are labeled conspiracy theories are very popular among average working class Americans. And there is a broad, uh, a broad anti-establishment sentiment, which there wasn't during that period. You know, during that period, there was a song that came out uh, called Okie from Muskogee. Uh, it was kind of a country song. and It was about how middle America doesn't care for protesters. Um, it's pretty wild. How important is it to be able to relate to people who intend to win for socialism? And um, yeah, it was it was a different time. And if you look at it, you know there was a big layer of the population. I mean, you listen to the lyrics to this this country song, "Okie from Muskogee." It was a big hit in like 1970. Uh, a couple of years after this, uh, the lyrics were like, uh, you know, what is it? It was describing some ideal small town uh, where what is it? Um, uh, you know, you know, uh, leather boots are still in style for manly footwear. Beads and Roman candles can't be seen. And football's still the roughest thing on campus. And the kids there still respect the college dean. And that was referring to the protests that were going on. Columbia University was being, being rocked by rebellions and protests. Berkeley, the students were out, you know, fighting the police and rebelling. And they were saying, you know, but, but, you know, Back in, in Oklahoma, you know, football's still the roughest thing on campus. And the kids there still respect the college dean, right? They were saying that they, there was this whole layer of the country that was not infected with the radicalism, right? Very different political atmosphere than the time we're living in right now. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the people of the world were rising up against U.S. imperialism. The black community was rebelling against racism. Um, you know, there was a layer of, of revolutionary intellectuals, uh, you know, in the United States who, who became attracted to, you know, Marxism, Leninism. There was a broader kind of counterculture milieu that was cultivated, you know, the, the hippies and rock and roll music, and drug culture and such. And, and yeah, it was a period in which, you know, U.S. society greatly changed, certainly changed quite a bit. And there's certainly some revolutionary messages we can draw from that. I mean, some that some we need to compare it to our own. We don't want to pretend we're living in a period like that because we're living in a period of great rebellions against U.S. You know, against capitalism for sure, and we're living in a period where there are countries around the world rising against U.S. imperialism for sure. But we're also living in a period where the aristocracy of labor is being broken down. We're living in a period where leftist politics is no longer what it once was, and uh, you know, Marxism-Leninism is no longer the central ideology forces resistant U.S. imperialism around the world, number one. And number two, in the United States, uh, the left is the, is, is, has become much more mainstream, number one, but it's also the left has no, is no longer anti-imperialist. Synthetic leftism that was cultivated by the CIA, uh, you know, uh, synthetic leftism has become dominant and left-wing circles are dominated by pro-imperialist elements. So, uh, so we're living in a very, very different period. But it's, it's interesting to reflect on. that. And I think another thing that you got to talk about when you talk about, you know, what happened 54 years ago today in the Tet Offensive is what was the result of it? 
right? Because we often hear this. What was the result of it, right? This is a common talking point for neocons. They say, oh, after the USA pulled out of Vietnam, things got worse. Uh, You know, Pol Pot killed a bunch of people and there was the Kampuchea War and and the boat people, people became boat people. And uh, where are the person here? People became boat people and refugees, and, and the USA pulled out of Vietnam, and life just got worse in Vietnam. Bullshit. 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 Anyone who tells you that has no idea what they are talking about. No idea what they're talking about. First of all, the USA did withdraw from Vietnam, and in 1975, Vietnam was reunified. But then the United States armed Pol Pot, and Pol Pot attacked Vietnam with covert support from the CIA in the United States. And then, you know, China invaded Vietnam to protect Pol Pot. And Vietnam didn't get peace. There was not peace in Vietnam until 1980. And after Vietnam got peace, the living standards in Vietnam started rising very rapidly. Uh, They wiped out illiteracy in Vietnam. Literacy was wiped out. Uh, The Life expectancy increased by 14.7 years. There was a 14.7 year increase in the life expectancy. Uh, Access to healthcare was created throughout the country. The country was electrified. And now, as a result of the victory of the Vietnamese people and seizing control of their country over a long struggle, the Vietnam War was a very long struggle. Vietnam has a very strong economy. You don't want to, you don't believe me, go read what the World Business Forum has to say about it. I'll pull it up right now. I'll just read you what the World Business Forum says about Vietnam. Um, okay. Uh, the World Economic Forum says about Vietnam. I'll just read you, right? This is what socialism has achieved in Vietnam. This is what socialism has achieved in Vietnam. I'll read it to you. I'm just pulling it up here, right? This is according, not to me, this is according to the World Economic Forum, which is not a a socialist institution by any means. Quote, Vietnam has invested heavily in human and physical capital, predominantly through public investment. Vietnam has invested a lot in its human capital and infrastructure, facing a rapidly growing population, it stands at 95 million today, half of whom are under 35, and up to 60 million in 1986, up from 60 million in, in 1986. Vietnam made large public investments in primary education. Though this was necessary, as a growing population also means a growing need for jobs. But Vietnam has also invested heavily in infrastructure, ensuring cheap access to the internet. The fourth industrial revolution is knocking on Southeast Asia's door. And having a sound IT infrastructure in place is essential preparation. Those investments have paid off. A mere 30 years ago, the country was one of the poorest in the world. How did this Southeast Asian nation grow to become a middle-income country? Um, And they, they talk about how Vietnam has heavily invested in the public sector. And as a result, it has a very, very strong economy. Um, This is from the World Business Forum, an article that they published in September of 2018. Um, You know, I mean, it's gushing with praise um, uh, for the Vietnamese and what they have done in terms of providing people jobs. They have five-year economic plans. They have the socialist-oriented market economy. Um, The GDP growth rate in Vietnam before the pandemic was roughly 6 to 7% a year. 
That's almost as high as the GDP growth rate in China usually is. That's roughly about the same as what it is in China. That's socialism working, folks. Uh, that is the strength of socialism. Sty Stitch would like to know how you feel about Kinkle supporting Carlson. I don't know who Sty Stitch is, um, and I'm going to comment on Carlson later. So there you go. Um, all right. And uh, all right. I don't know who Sy Stitch is, but I'll, I'll tell you what I think about Carlson later. Um, but there you go. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is an example of socialism having success. So why was the USA bombing Vietnam? Why did the USA drop so much, so many bombs on Vietnam? Why did the USA kill millions, like four to five million Vietnamese people in order to, in order to just defeat you know, the efforts to reunify the country? The reason was to keep Vietnam poor. The imperialists want to keep the world poor. They want the entire world to be poor. They are waging a war to hold back economic development. They want the whole world to be poor, and they want to prevent what Russia and China did during the 20th century, lifting themselves up out of poverty, becoming industrial superpowers, you know, wiping out illiteracy, electrifying the country, building their own industries, exporting their own oil, building telecommunications manufacturers, and a modern steel industry. That's what U.S. imperialism is about. U.S. imperialism is about keeping the world poor so that Wall Street and London can stay rich. And that's what the USA was fighting to do in Vietnam. It did not want Vietnam to do what it has done and lift itself up out of poverty. And it was the defeat of U.S. imperialism and the defeat of the covert operations against them from Pol Pot and others that laid the basis for Vietnam ultimately economically developing. And Vietnam had very big success. Uh, so there you go. Uh, viewer of this live stream would like to know what your thoughts on Canadian truckers protest. All right, talk about that. All right. So, yeah, I mean, I, I just wanted to comment on that. Um, that, that again, you know, if it weren't for socialism, Vietnam would still be a deeply poor country. But socialism has raised millions of people from poverty in Vietnam. And the Vietnamese people came together and they fought and they made great sacrifices and they endured horrific bombing, but yet they defeated U.S. imperialism. And what happened in Vietnam is a lot like what's happening in Yemen now. Yemen, Yemen today is one of the poorest countries in the world, but yet the people of Yemen have come together and they are continuing to heroically fight off an all-out attack from Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has the fourth largest military budget of any country in the world. They buy all kinds of U.S.-made drones and cruise missiles and weapons, but yet the people of Yemen, of this impoverished country, are resisting heroically, right? And this, what happened in Vietnam 54 years ago, and what happened, what's happening today in Yemen shows that what Mao Zedong wrote was correct. The people of a small country can surely defeat aggression by a big country but only if they dare to rise in struggle. And that's what the Vietnamese people did. They dared to rise in struggle. And as a result, uh, millions of Vietnamese people live in much better conditions. They've seen their country lifted up from poverty. Um, and it shook the United States. It caused a political crisis within the United States. Uh, you know, the, the, the Vietnam War did. So I, I just wanted to highlight that history because people don't know about it. Uh, people don't know this history and it's worth, worth revisiting. Now, now, um, so on that note, um, I think we'll do the roll call next. Be uh, here.
Uh, we'll do the roll call and I'll call you out as I see you, names and locations. So we'll do the roll call. That concludes my opening remarks. And then after that, uh, I'll answer your super chat questions. Now, tune in later tonight. Um, after, after this, I'm going, I'm going home. And from home, uh, late tonight, around 10, I'm going to be interviewing Daniel Burke of the Schiller Institute. So that's going to be awesome. Uh, so tune in for that. And then on Wednesday morning, uh, stay tuned for the next episode of my podcast with Harpel Brar. Uh, mopping and brawling conversation. So that's going to be awesome. So who do we got here in the chat? We got, oh, all right. I'm just going to make sure I get everybody here. So we've got, we've got Arturo in Alaska, Alan in Utah, Sam in Chicago, Melbourne, Australia, Ash in Chicago, Shia from Montreal, Micah in Las Vegas, Tony in Tasmania, John in Houston, Northeastern Oregon, Nathaniel in Washington, Steve in Southwest Michigan, Kieran from San Diego, David in Paris, France, Stephen in Riverside, California, in Riverside County, California, Prince George, Canada, Cheers, Quinn and Meredith from Washington, Cheers, Vinicius from Brazil, Marlon in San Diego, Great, London, England, Jonah in Akron, Ohio, Mindanao to Midwest, East Leipzig, East Germany, Bob Troy in New York, Jersey City, New Jersey. Uh, uh, Colin in Greensboro, North Carolina, Nate Pano from Sydney, Australia, Orange County, California, Los Angeles, Nick Hakananen in Hopkins, Minnesota, Ellie from New Orleans, Danny in Boston, Danny in Colorado, Dario from Brooklyn, shout out to you, Dario, good friend of the program, Carmen in Redding, Pennsylvania, Austin, Texas, Peter in New York, Georgia, Lockport, New York, under the bridge, Max in the Coxkills, Don D in NYC, uh, Nadia in East Harlem, Pomona, California, Houston, Kendall in San Diego, Ben in Chicago, Cass in Denmark, Detroit, Michigan, Upper Peninsula, Michigan, Viking Dave, West Virginia, Melbourne, Australia, Gabby in Chicago, uh, Chad in Independence, Chance in Saskatchewan, Happy Valley, Oregon, Yucca, John in Colorado, Las Vegas, Eric in Las Vegas, north of Italy, Danny in Illinois, Maddie from California, St. David's, Bermuda, Jared in Virginia, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, Adelaide, Australia, Calvin from Saskatoon is with us, northern lower Michigan. Wow. Wow. Good times. Mora in New York. There we go. Liverpool, UK. Um, there we go. Who else is with us tonight? Names and locations, right? Uh, uh, Arden from the Islamic Republic of Iran, Temple City, California. Very good. Very, very good, folks. Turin, Italy. Love from Maine, says Andre. Love you too. Uh, Kel oh, no, Kelly. Kelly is from Maine. Sorry. Um, but there we go. There we go. Isn't it great, folks? So be sure to tweet this out. Be sure to post this on your Facebook, post it on your Reddit, post it on your Bunker Chan, post this in Facebook groups, make this your status on Twitter or your Twitter tweeted out or whatever it is you do, Instagram, Bunker Chan, Troll Wiki, Lefty Poll, wherever videos are posted, be sure to post this. It's always amazing to engage with all of you. We are a great community here uh, on this YouTube channel. And now... I will be answering your super chat questions. So if you have more super chat questions, I can add them to the list um, and we will get started answering the super chat questions at this point. Uh, more details on the coming event in Texas. Well, it'll be happening on March 12th. It'll be happening at a hotel near the airport in Texas. 
Um, and we will have an official poster soon uh, to post uh, on the event. Um, it's going to be great. Uh, Jackson Hinkle and myself will be giving the keynote. Uh, there will be some local activists who will speak. There will also be some uh, activists from around the country who will be speaking. Oh, Herb Bryant in Tampa, Florida. Thank you, Herb Bryant, for your super chat. Much appreciated. Um, and um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, it's going to be great. We're going to have some music there. There'll be some musical performances, and it's going to be uh, an amazing anti-imperialist indoor rally. So I hope that you can make it and join us in Austin, Texas, March 12th. We'll have an official announcement soon. Uh, Lumpia Logic is 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 planning to is thinking of going, and I think that's awesome. Um, and I, I hope that folks can make it um, because it's going to be really, really awesome. Um, you know, we are, we are at a point where we're having to figure out what's next for the Center for Political Innovation. We're trying to figure out what resources we have, what we don't have, and what's realistic. And these John Brown volunteers, they deserve a medal. These, re these kids really deserve a medal. They have worked so hard. Um, and, uh, you know, they have been through some rough times. And the last couple months have been trying for us. But we're learning, you know, we're learning how to... Uh, how to figure out these, you know, how to do this. And they have endured, uh, they've been through some hard stuff. And, you know, I, I just, I want to wish I was in Texas to give them a hug. I will be in Texas to give them a hug, um, you know, pretty soon. Uh, but yes, Gabby recognizes uh, the heart. I mean, I, I, you know, my heart goes out to those John Brown volunteers. Uh, I love them. Absolutely. And uh, I can't wait to be with them in March in Texas because they are working hard. And they are great. And charge our darling and, Madeline and Keaton, they're doing great work. They really are doing great work, and I am really proud of them. I couldn't be prouder of them. Um, and the same goes for those San Angelo Solidarity people. David, David Cedillo, Christina, and Logan, and I mean, the San Angelo folks, they're doing great work as well. Um, you know, so I, I'm, I'm so proud of them. And, you know, so many good people are attracted to our organization. There's something about our streams. You know, we attract good people in this community. You know, there's a lot of leftist circles that attract eh, shady kind of people, right? You know, but we attract good people. here. You know, we, we appeal to what's best in people. We're not on here appealing to people's desire to get revenge or their rage at their parents. Um, you know, so there you go. Have you seen Jordan Peterson's recent comments on Marxism? In his recent podcast, he did. Would love to hear your perspective on it. Oh, I'm sure they're abysmal. Um, so I'll have to check that out. I've commented on some of the stuff he said in the past, but thank you for the tip. I don't want to respond to something I haven't heard, but that I'll, I'll probably do a video responding to that because Jordan Peterson knows nothing about Marxism. He should never speak about it. He speaks with utter ignorance when he speaks about Marxism and it fills me with rage because I actually care about this stuff and I actually believe in it. And this man has no idea what he's talking about. He argues against a straw man that's embarrassing. Um, and I make that clear and it's just, I'll do it again because I mean, you should never talk about Marxism, you should never talk about Marxism. Uh, so there you go. Thank you for the heads up. I'm going to look into that. You know, Ryan, uh, class analysis, Ryan, good friend of mine, he, he loves the optimistic message. So that's really great. We got to keep appealing to what's best in people. So thank you for that. Next super chat question, bloody Sunday, right? That's the massacre that happened uh, in Northern Ireland where the people were marching for civil rights for the Catholic community and they were shot down and, and it was a horrendous incident, Bloody Sunday. Uh, and um, it was kind of a turning point, you know, with the provisional IRA escalating their struggle afterwards after these peaceful protesters were shot down um, and the future of the Irish struggle. Well, 
the thing is um, that at this point, the, the United Kingdom is falling apart. Uh, Scotland is on the brink of leaving. Uh, you know, uh, Wales is on the brink of leaving. Um, and Northern Ireland, uh, you know, is, is a, it's technically part of the United Kingdom, but it's a colony, right? Ireland, the Irish people are a colonized people. And I support uh, 32 county sovereignty, right? I think that the Irish people should have, you know, unification. I, I'm for, I am for unification of all of Ireland. I'm for 32 county sovereignty. Uh, you know, I'm against the occupation. That said, it's important to note uh, that the main representative of the Irish people in their anti-colonial struggle is Sinn Féin, is Sinn Féin. And Sinn Féin, you know, is pretty reformist in a lot of ways. There's a lot of elements in Sinn Féin that are not very revolutionary, that are social democratic, um, but there are a lot of very revolutionary elements within Sinn Féin also. Let's not forget that Sinn Féin uh, recognizes the Palestinians and supports the Palestinians vehemently in their struggle against Israel. Uh, let's also remember that Sinn Féin recognizes Maduro and has gone as far as sending delegations to Maduro's inaugurations in Venezuela. So Sinn Féin has a revolutionary wing and it has a reactionary wing. Um, so, you know, if we are, if we are serious about supporting the Irish people, um, we have to, on some level, critically, critically, meaning that we recognize its flaws, we have to uh, support Sinn Féin. We have to recognize that Sinn Féin, which is functioning as a legal political party that is no longer engaged in armed struggle, they are the real representative of the Irish people's national liberation struggle in Northern Ireland. Um, you know, and that these other groups, the real IRA, the, uh, you know, the, the, what is it, the, um, the reconstituted IRA, those groups don't have any real mass base of support among the population. Those are ultra leftist organizations that are engaging in armed struggle, in armed struggle at a time that the population does not feel that armed struggle is necessary. Now, we know the reason the Good Friday Agreement was signed in 1993, uh, the reason it was signed was because the Soviet Union fell. Uh, and the Soviet Union fell, and the population was weary of war, and there was a feeling that uh, it was time to sign a treaty. And at this point, uh, if the Irish people in Northern Ireland, if 51% of them were to vote for independence, uh, they could get it. And we are in a period where that could happen, right? I mean, Scotland could be leaving the UK pretty soon. Uh, Wales could be leaving the UK pretty soon. And it's it's possible as, as a result of Brexit and all the crazy things, the pandemic and austerity, it's very possible. It's very, very possible uh, that there could be a vote of independence. Um, and that said, you know, it may, there may come a time where the Irish people do need to take up arms once again because their democratic rights are being violated. Um, but right now, um, you know, right now at this point, Sinn Féin is the legit representative of the Irish people's national liberation struggle. And they do not engage in armed struggle at this time. Um, and that's an important thing to point out. And let's remember, why did, why did the Irish people take up arms? Did they take up arms because they wanted to be exciting and they thought it was revolutionary and they wanted to be Che Guevara? No, no. The provisional IRA. All right. So first of all, when you talk about IRA, let's talk about this. So the original Irish Republican Army was formed in, you know, as, as a fighting force for national liberation, right? You know, with James Connolly and then in the 1920s, the the Irish Free State, et cetera. That was the original IRA, right? Then during, during the 1960s, um, there was a wave of violence against, you know, Catholics in Northern Ireland. And they faced a wave of violence. Uh, there was repression. And so the British military was sent to Northern Ireland. And when the British military was sent at first, um, at first, uh, there was a lot of support 
among the population, uh, you know, for the British military. They, they thought the British military was there to keep them safe. Uh, but then it became clear the British military started committing atrocities against the Irish people once again. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the British military set up checkpoints and was terrorizing people. And so in response to, you know, violence, uh, you know, and discrimination from the, the Protestants uh, and in response, to, in response to the British military coming in and occupying their neighborhoods and terrorizing them, in response to that, um, a new or a provisional Irish Republican army was formed. Uh, their ability to peacefully organize and struggle had been taken away. They couldn't peacefully organize. And so they formed the provisional Irish Republican Army. And there was also the Irish National Liberation Army. And these groups were formed because there was widespread mass support for them in Catholic neighborhoods and their ability to peacefully struggle for independence had been taken away. Um, and now part of the Good Friday Agreement is that if 51% of the people living in Northern Ireland vote for independence, they could have it. So they do have, in theory, a peaceful road, you know, to independence. So it's a little bit different than that. Now, it's important to be clear, you know, the, Irish, the Sinn Féin and the Irish National Liberation Struggle, even now, as I've mentioned, Sinn Féin has a very reformist wing. Even now, it's clear that Sinn Féin is not just fighting for independence on paper. They are fighting for an independent, democratic, socialist republic you know, a united Ireland that's democratic and socialist. They want socialism, right? They're fighting for an Ireland where the people control the banks, factories, and industries. They're, control they're fighting for a socialist Ireland. Uh, that's what James Connolly fought for. Um, and so it is a socialist struggle. It's not simply a struggle against British imperialism and colonialism. It's also a struggle for socialism. And that's important to point out as well. And that even among the more reformist elements of Sinn Féin, that is, that is a correct feeling. It is a socialist struggle. And they align themselves with Venezuela. They align themselves with the Palestinians. Um, so there you go. All right. Got to say, Caleb, you really exposed me to the hopeful nature of communism. The synthetic left rounds out with their pessimism. I'd love to have you on my channel sometime to expose to my audience. Well, I would love to go on your channel sometime, it sounds like. So shoot me an email, calebmoppin at gmail.com. Um, Caleb Moppin at gmail.com, all one word, no spaces or periods. And I would, I will look into your channel and see if I want to come on. Thank you for the invitation. I hope that that works out. Very good. All right. What's the next super chat question we've got going on here? Um, how do you decipher? This is from Chai. This is a very important question. I, there's a very good answer to it too, because we need to be clear on this. Oh, um, and you state your definition of socialism, citing textual evidence from Marx and Engels. Why, yes, I can. And I've done that many times. There you go. All right. And in fact, since I have my laptop in front of me, I can actually pull you up the text. So there you go. Um, but this is a very important question from Chaya. All right. I'm writing down your site, your definition of socialism, Marx and Engels. Easily done, sir. Easily done. Um, but yes, uh, Chaya is asking, uh, she says, how do you decipher what is a legitimate movement and what is a, what is a counter gang or Bonapartism? Well, here's what I'm here, here to tell you. Here's what I'm here to tell you, Chaya. Almost all struggles have an element of both. Did you hear that? Let me repeat that once again. Almost all struggles, Chaya, have an element of both. I can give you many examples of this, but let's start with the civil rights movement, right? The civil rights movement. Black people in the United States have been fighting for their rights since the moment they were brought here in chains. Nat Turner led slave revolts. 
You had the Amistad slave ship where black people revolted. You know, after black people were free from slavery, uh, there was there were black nationalist movements. Uh, you had Marcus Garvey and others. You had the African Blood Brotherhood that was formed, led by Harry Haywood, a self-defense organization of black people that fought the Ku Klux Klan, eventually merged into the Communist Party. The Communist Party formed the Civil Rights Congress. So black people have always been fighting for their rights. And there's always been resistance to Jim Crow segregation, to racism, to discrimination among the black community. Always. So if you were to dismiss the black liberation struggle as just, oh, that's, that's just a counter gang. That's, a, that's you know, that's, that's an element of, of the bourgeoisie mobilizing people for their own ends. You'd obviously be wrong. However, why in 1954 did suddenly the civil rights movement explode? Why was it that starting in 1954 with the Montgomery bus boycott and the lynching of Emmett Till and the protests that followed the lynching of Emmett Till, why did the civil rights movement explode? Because there was a Bonapartist struggle in the ruined class. Because of the fact that, that the USSR had used the Jim Crow and racism issue to humiliate the United States at the UN. Uh, because of the fact that the Southern wing of the Democratic Party had weakened Harry Truman and prevented him from passing national health care. Did you know this? The, the reason we didn't have national health care in the United States, the closest we've ever gotten was in 1948. Harry Truman was president of the United States, and he wanted to create national health care. And it was going to pass. The Democrats had a majority. They were ready to pass national health care. But then the Southern Dixiecrats, and you can read about this. this. I mean, the New York Times did an interesting historical piece on this at the time of at the time that Obamacare was being discussed, the Southern Dixiecrats sat down with Harry Truman, leaders of the Democrats, and they're like, all right, now, we understand that if we have national health care, you're going to build us a white hospital, and you're going to build us also a hospital for the black people, right? And the federal government said, no, no, there's no way that the federal government can spend money to build two different hospitals. That's not in the budget. We don't have it. Wait a second there, Mr. Truman. Are you telling me but if we pass national health care, why all white people in the South are going to have to go to hospitals with black people? And Harry Truman said, why, yes, yes, that is the case. Why, we, the Southern wing of the Democratic Party, we will never stand for that. And the, the Southern wing of the Democratic Party defeated, and they went with the Republicans, and they defeated national health care. Little known fact, the reason we don't have national health insurance is because of racism. And the Democrats lost, they lost, you know, they lost a big fight. You know, Harry Truman was going to be very popular. He was going to create national health insurance. And they lost a big fight uh, because of the Southern Dixiecrats. And the Southern Dixiecrats were constantly kicking around the Northern wing of the Democratic Party. And, you know, you know, the Kennedy family, they had been all for McCarthyism and stuff like that. But Starting around 1954, as McCarthyism was starting to fade, the Kennedy family and the northern wing of the Democratic Party, they started getting interested in civil rights because there was a Bonapartist struggle in the ruling class. So, so it's both. Black people have always been fighting for their rights. But in about 1954, there became a Bonapartist struggle. So what happened? At that point, it was the United Auto Workers Union, the UAW which at that point was controlled by the CIA, right? They set up something called Solidarity House. They banned all the communists from the United Auto Workers Union. The CIA was giving a subsidy to the UAW through what's called Solidarity House or Solidarity Center, which is a CIA-funded CIA, a CIA -funded institute that, that studies labor unions around the world that are 
you know, that are anti-communist. Um, and the CIA was kind of dominating, dominating the Solidarity House. And uh, Norman Thomas of the Socialist Party, uh, Walter and Victor Ruther, the leaders of the United Auto Workers Union, uh, they went to Montgomery, Alabama, and they found a very young pastor named Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And they picked Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. because he was young enough that, uh, that he would not be considered to be a communist because all the older pastors who had worked, um, who had worked on, uh, on civil rights had been with the Communist Party because the only group that had worked for the rights of African-Americans, the only like national organization, you know, that was, you know, the only major political party that was fighting for the rights of African-Americans before World War II was the Communist Party. So all the older ministers who had been fighting for civil rights all had a relationship or had been in the Communist Party at one point or knew people in the Communist Party. Dr. Martin Luther King was young. He was in his early 30s. And so they said, okay, he's young enough. He doesn't have ties to the communists. And the UAW, which was controlled by the CIA, picked Dr. Martin Luther King and they said, we're going to make him the face of the struggle against Jim Crow. And we're going to show the whole world that, that we're getting better on racism, that what the Soviet Union says about America being a racist country, uh, it's not true. And that's what the civil rights movement, you know, that, that was the hope is that they could get rid of Jim Crow in the South, weaken the Jim Crow Dixiecrat wing of the Democratic Party, and they could also improve the image of the United States. But what happened? Right. So, yes. So there was a bonapartist struggle. Right. And that the Dr. Martin Luther King was kind of selected to be the leader of it. But then what happened? What happened? Well, the black people in the South and the, the freedom marches and stuff, it got out of their control. And pretty soon you had the black liberation struggle and the Black Panthers. And even Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. became an opponent of capitalism, started calling for socialism. So just because, again, so there's always been black resistance. Black resistance isn't a Bonapartist counter gang. But then there was some CIA or some CIA meddling and some Bonapartist counter gang stuff in, in the 50s. But then they lost control of it. And pretty soon it turned into something else. So every struggle, every uprising of the people has an element of both. Right. And I mean, you talk about the Russian Revolution. How did the Russian Revolution begin? The Russian Revolution began. It began. The February Revolution was basically a coup. Right. It was that, that the wealthy, the bourgeoisie of Russia didn't like the czar. The czar was an incompetent buffoon. He was losing World War One. He was having his wife was having an affair with Rasputin, the mad monk or whatever. And, and they were losing the war. And so the capitalists of Russia got together and they said, let's bring down the czar. And so when there was a strike that happened instead of, you know, and the, when the police went to go arrest the strikers, they sent the Cossacks, the mounted cavalry to go protect the strikers, right? That was the military, the Cossacks, that was the cavalry, the soldiers on horses rode in, the actual military rode in and cut off the heads of the police and defended the Bolsheviks when they were on strike. And so there was a strike. And then the message got sent to workers all over St. Petersburg. Oh, we can go on strike. And pretty soon the whole city of St. Petersburg was on strike and the czar stepped down. That was a Bonapartist struggle. The capitalists wanted to remove the czar. However, at that point, with workers on strike all over the city, the Bolsheviks got moving and they kept it going. And they said, we want to end the war, down with war. And, and they lost control of it. Chaya, every, every revolutionary movement of the people, every struggle has an element of Bonapartism, an element of the ruling class using people and fighting among themselves, and an element of an upsurge from below. But what generally happens is that if it becomes a full-blown revolution, 
the Bonapartist, uh, you know, element is lost, that the people kind of get in motion and are no longer puppets. And the opposite is what's happening now. Uh, you know, nowadays, you know, you know, struggles that are, that are being promoted on CNN are just simply used. Thoughts on Argentina getting the IMF restructuring. All right. All right. Got it. Got it. Argentina. There you go. Um, and I could, I could keep going. We could name example after example of this, that, that all progressive struggles have an element of upsurge from below and have an element of Bonapartism. The question is, which, which gets the upper hand? And sometimes they start out as just kind of a progressive struggle. And then these Bonapartist elements, you know, the, you know, the Democratic Party, you know, trade union bureaucracy, elements like that come and take them over. And in other instances, it'll start out as a, a Bonapartist kind of a staged thing for the media, and then other elements will move in and, and take it in another direction. It, it, most every major upsurge has an element of both. And I appreciate that, Brian. Thank you. So there you go. Every major upsurge has an element of both. But that's a good question, Chaya, because you know, there's a lot of people that want to say, oh, you dismiss everything as a conspiracy theory. There's a lot of people who want to point to every progressive struggle and say, oh, the government's involved. It's not real. It's more complicated than that. Books on intel agency involvement with cults and new age religions. Very interesting. Well, there's a lot about Reverend Sun Young Moon and his ties to the CIA. Um, you know, Reverend Sun Young Moon, uh, you know, I mean, he was CIA from the beginning. And there's a lot written about most Mooney uh, exposés, whether you read the book Moon Webs, gets into that. And, you know, Reverend Sun Young Moon and his ties to the CIA and the Korean CIA and the Nixon administration are massively well documented. Um, there's a lot written about it. I mean, they are, they are, they are, you know, the Korean far right wing. They are American intelligence. They're tied to the Bush family. Uh, there's even like little documentaries about this. It's not a secret to anybody. So that's, that's that. Um, but as far as like CIA mind control and brainwashing, um, you know, one, uh, one very good place to start, uh, would be a very good book by John D. Marks called the search for the Manchurian candidate. That is a very, very good book, uh, that I would recommend, uh, the search for the Manchurian candidate by John D. Marks. Um, that's a good place to start. Um, now I'm trying to think what other examples you might want to go to. You know, there's a good book uh, that was written by Tim Woolforth, um, and it's called uh, Political Cults in the United States, something like that. And it goes over, it talks about Harvey Jackins and, and the co-reevaluation counseling, the split from Scientology. Um, and it talks about a lot of different groups. That, that might be interesting. I mean, not everything. I don't endorse everything in that book, obviously. Some of it's just, you know, kind of hit pieces. And I think the section on the right wing is particularly weak. Because it's like he thinks the right wing are just neo-Nazis, right? I mean, what about the John Birch Society? John Birch Society is a great example of a right wing political cult. No mention of them. Uh, you know, and, and, and then like I think Tim Woolforth, you know, he's a, a Trotskyite and like he throws one group in there, the militant tendency, Ted Grant, says they're a cult and he provides no evidence that they're actually a cult. I mean, and he repeats some untrue rumors about other, other books and that groups in that book. So that may, that book, I mean, I don't agree with a lot of the content, but if you're looking for like information, about political cults and how they fit in with the political spectrum and stuff like that. You know, that book, it talks about, for example, um, the Newmanites, the followers of Fred Newman. Fred Newman was a Marxist psychoanalyst in New York City uh, who is, was basically, you know, he had a psychoanalytical Marxist cult. He worked for, for Pat Buchanan for a long time. Uh, and he also worked for um, 
he worked for uh, Bloomberg. He was tied to Bloomberg, uh, you know, and they ran the New York State Independence Party, um, you know, um, you know. So, you know, I, I, that, that book, you know, that might be a good place to start. Read Tim Woolforth's book on political cults, on, was it on the edge, political cults or something like that. That might be a good place to start. Um, what else? Um, you know, um, I, if you want to learn about, you know, Tibetan separatism, uh, there's a very good book called The CIA's Secret War in Tibet. And that's from the horse's mouth. I mean, that's published by the Heritage Foundation. And it tells you all about how the Dalai Lama and their ties to the CIA. Uh, so that's a good place to start if you want to look into that. Um, you know, so, yeah, there are many places to go. But, um, yeah, I just gave you three good books there. Um, you know, The Search for the Manchurian Candidate, um, the On the Edge Political Cults by Tim Woolforth, um, and, um, and, uh, and the CIA's secret war in Tibet. Those are three great places to start. Um, and also moon webs. You want to learn about Reverend Sun Young Moon. Uh, this book moon webs has a lot of information about their ties to Korean intelligence. It's a Canadian book that was published by ex ex members of the unification church. And unlike most of the Mooney exposés. Most, most Mooney exposés are just kind of like, they were in the group, they felt like they were brainwashed, here's their inside story, da, da, da. you know, it's like a personal story, but the that book, Moonwebs, uh, it's a Canadian guy who was a Mooney, and he, he clearly has become some kind of leftist. In the, it's in the 80s, he wrote the book, and, and he became some kind of leftist, and he exposed their ties to uh, the Korean CIA and stuff like that. So, uh, Moonwebs, I would recommend. All right. Um, uh, that might be good. Um, how do you recommend approaching the topic of Christ and socialism with conservatives in the Bible Belt? Well, okay. I mean, first of all, it must be approached delicately, very delicately, because religion is something that people take very seriously. And if someone is very fanatical, right? If someone, I, and you know, I, if someone is very, very fanatical, if someone is is a you know, a Pentecostal uh, or a, a fundamental Baptist, uh, you're going to make you're you're going to have a very hard time because their beliefs, even they they are vehement in their disagreement with other forms of Christianity. Even so, the idea you're going to convince them that Jesus was a socialist, it's going to be a little bit difficult. Um, the kind of people that you can have that conversation with tend to be Roman Catholics. They're Roman Catholics. You have to remember the Catholic Church itself is very critical of capitalism. So not only can you talk the, talk about the Bible with Catholics, but you can talk about things that the Pope has said. You can talk about things the Catholic Church has said. The Catholic Church officially condemns capitalism. So there's, you know, with Catholics, uh, you can have a conversation. With people that are just in kind of the broader evangelical milieu, you can have a conversation. But if someone's a fundamental Baptist, if someone's a Jehovah's Witness, you know, the chances of you actually getting through to them are going to be quite slim, right? People that are, you know, in like a fanatical sect, you have to remember that they're constantly, you know, telling you how, how other forms of evangelical Christianity are wrong. Um, but, you know, and, and it must be approached respectfully. That's another thing. It must be approached respectfully. And it needs to be done with, with careful thought because you are talking about something that's, that's very important to this person. Um, but a really good thing to do is to contrast before you even get to socialism, contrast the morality of Jesus with the morality of libertarians. I think that's the first place to start. Because what Jesus Christ advocated and what libertarians advocate, not on a, not on a policy level, but just on a moral level, place, place struggle of 
oppressed first to unite proletarians. Okay. Struggles. Um, when Jesus, you know, says things like, you know, that if you have two pieces of food, you should share two pieces of food. And if you have two tunics, you should give a tunic to your brother. Um, and a rich man comes to Jesus and says, you know, I follow all the commandments. He says, but what should I do to be perfect? Jesus says, oh, if you want to be perfect, sell everything you own and give it to the poor. And then the rich man goes away in sadness because he has many great possessions. Um, Jesus Christ was promoting selflessness. Jesus Christ was saying to give up, give up your greed, give up your radical individualism and come and follow me. And that's really clear if you read the scriptures. Jesus was not preaching the virtue of selfishness. Jesus was not preaching greed is good. Nowhere in the Bible, you, know, you find the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. And that the morality of capitalism, the morality promoted by free marketeers and libertarians, it says greed is good. The John Galt stuff has nothing in common with the Bible at all. I mean, it just doesn't. I mean, it absolutely does not. I mean, there is no overlap. I mean, there, there just isn't. I mean, you cannot believe that stuff you know, and, and believe in, in, you know, in, in, in Christianity. Um, that stuff is just contrary. Uh, and thank you. Uh, thank you for the super chat, uh, Mr. Supreme. Thank you. That stuff is just contrary to what libertarians believe, right? And they read the John Galt speech. This is John Galt speaking. I, I, I swear allegiance to myself and only to myself. I shall not live for the sake no, Christ is saying you must live for the sake of others, right? Um, you know, I mean, you must live, sell all that you own and give it to the poor, right? Uh, you know, I mean, that, that, that uh, you know, that, 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 you know, the good Samaritan, you know, the good Samaritan doesn't pass by, you know, the person who's down on the side of the road, but stops and helps them, right? Um, you know, uh, you know, I mean, you know, you read parable after parable from Jesus. He's telling people not to be selfish, to be kind to other people, to put their own ego aside, right? I mean, that is not what libertarians believe. And you cannot have the morality of Ayn Rand. You cannot have the morality of, of uh, you know, Stefan Molyneux. You cannot have the morality, uh, the morality of Milton Friedman and be in line with Jesus's teachings. Jesus at no point preaches free market values, preaches radical individualism. He doesn't. So that's, the, that's a good place to start. Don't talk about socialism. Don't talk about government policy. Just talk about morality. And then a good thing to point out is, do you know who did preach the morality of Ayn Rand? Who did preach the morality of Ayn Rand? Anton LaVey, the Church of Satan. I'm not exaggerating. The Church of Satan preached the values of capitalism. You know, I, I actually joke, um, you know, I, I, I've done this before at speeches where I'll say, you know, when I was a kid growing up, there were some Bible verses that we never read in church. One of them was, there is nothing wrong with being greedy. 
And another one was that man is just another animal. And another one is wealth to the weak, you know, or, or death to the weak and wealth to the strong. And why is it we never read those Bible verses? Because they are not from the Christian Bible. They are from the Satanic Bible written by Anton LaVey. And I do that to make a point. The Satanic Bible is a free market libertarian manifesto, right? Satanism is a morality of capitalism, right? I mean, if you look at it, the morality advocated by free marketeers, greed is good, selfishness is good, you know, let the poor suffer, you know, don't feed homeless people. It just encourages that. That is not the morality of the Bible. It's not. It's the morality of Satanism. Uh, and if you can make that point, you can make that point, right? That's a starting point. Now, the main objection that you find in all of these writings, they have one argument. This is the only argument they have against Jesus being a socialist is they say, well, Jesus didn't believe in force. This is what they say. Jesus wanted you to be good on your own. But if the government makes you be nice to people, if the government taxes your money and gives it to somebody, that doesn't count because that's force. The government is being forceful. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. He wants you to be good on your own. He didn't believe in force. It's this libertarian wank about, oh, they don't believe in force. They, you know, voluntarism, blah, 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 blah. Well, that's interesting. If Jesus didn't believe in force, uh, why was Ananias, right? The early church in the book of Acts, it talks about in Acts, verse, in Acts chapter 4. The early Christians held all things in common. None among them were without, but distribution was made according to every man by his name. Acts verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 32. And then if you keep reading, you learn that among the early Christians, there was a man named Ananias. And Ananias had some property and he sold it and he kept the money for himself and he hid it from the church. Well, I guess Jesus didn't believe in force. He didn't believe in force, right? What happened? Well, according to the Bible, uh, Ananias was struck down. God struck him down for engaging in his profiteering. So, I mean, if God is going to kill somebody for being greedy and not sharing their possessions with those who are in need, uh, that doesn't sound like they didn't believe in force. You know, and if Christians believe in force and outlawing abortion, Christians believe in force and outlawing murder, and they believe in force and in outlawing theft, why would they not believe in force in, in eradicating poverty? So it's a it's a it's a fallacious argument. It's a completely fallacious argument. So I got two super chats here. Secular Quranism would like to know if Jesus was a socialist, what was Muhammad? I don't know enough about Islam to comment on that. I'm not a Muslim. And I haven't studied the Quran enough to, to comment on that. But I, I, from what I understand, talking to Muslims, yes, that Muslims do believe they pay a zakat uh, that, that goes to the poor. Islamic socialism is there. And the Shia Muslims object to capitalism. They think that capitalism uh, is inconsistent with their teachings. Gaddafi pushed Islamic socialism. And there is an Islamic critique of capitalism and that, that Muhammad did preach, you know, that, that one should care for the poor and the hungry. And so... I am not an expert on Islam because I'm not a Muslim, but my understanding is that yes, Islam does promote uh, the belief that one should be, you know, that one should have a similar morality. No religion, no true religion, no religion. Uh, that, that, I mean, it's basic human morality is what stands in opposition to capitalism. The socialism described in the Bible, both Hebrew and Christian, is more about redistributing wealth, not growing the productive forces, though. Well, Chaya, you are correct. Uh, uh, you're kind of correct, right? So. 
So there's two things, right? I mean, obviously, socialism in the Marxist sense wasn't around yet, right? Um, Iraqi history, 1968 onward, hope for socialism. Uh, okay. You aren't, you aren't correct in the Marxist sense, okay? Um, you know, the, the Bible was not advocating Marxism, right? You know, the Bible does not have a dialectical materialist or a historical materialist worldview, right? Um, and that's pretty clear, right? That the, the worldview espoused by the Bible is a spiritual one um, and that, that they're advocating kindness and compassion for the poor and, and a social welfare state, charity, et cetera. So there's that. But you also have to talk about the early Christian church, and that's, that's the other thing. So in addition to advocating general kindness, right, which you find in the Old Testament too, right? I mean, it said, you know, in the Old Testament, it says you should never let one of your, one of your community go hungry, et cetera. But, um, but in the New Testament, as Jesus is mobilizing and building the church, and after Jesus' resurrection and ascendancy into heaven, uh, you know, as they're building the church, it's very clear they are building some kind of utopian socialist community. Um, you know, I'll, I'll read to you, um, um, the, what is it? There's, there's one particular verse, um, um, what is it? Um, Acts two. Uh, they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching, um, and they, you know, this is Acts, Acts 2, verses 42. Uh, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. And a sense of awe came over everyone. The apostles performed many wonders and signs. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. Right? And, and as they're building the Christian church, they're building a utopian socialist community. I mean, it's a lot like what Henry St. Simone or Robert Owen or the utopian socialists built. Um, and this is, this is confirmed. I mean, this was a big trend for, for like centuries following, following the crucifixion of Jesus. All throughout Palestine, you had Essene Jews uh, and others practicing utopian socialism or utopian communism. So there's that. Um, and in addition to that, um, they're calling for the poor to rise up. Um, and, you know, they're calling for the poor to rise up against the rich. Um, and that that is very clear. I mean, if you read it, they're, they're mobilizing the oppressed to rise up against the rich. That's very Marxist. And they're building utopian socialist communities where people hold all things in common. So that's part of it, right? If you just read the stuff about poverty, it's like, yes, people should give to the poor, et cetera. But there's also the apostles are building a utopian socialist community where no one has any possessions. And there's also, you know, calls for the, you know, you know the, the, the oppressed and the weak to rise up against the rich, et cetera. So um, but anyway, um, anyway, I don't want to talk religion on these pod, on these streams too much. And the reason for that is because I'm going to be doing a whole series for Rockfin, uh, exclusively for Rockfin, called The Bible and the Proletarian Movement. And there is going to be multiple episodes of this, many episodes of this. And we are going to hammer out one topic each week. The first episode is coming up. Hopefully later this week, we'll have the first episode. Um, and that first episode is going to be all about the book of Genesis. Uh, and it'll be about the creation story and how the creation story actually alludes to a lot of Marxist principles. Um, and uh, I don't want to say too much about it. So, so if you if you really want to get into Marxism and the Bible, um, wait until I'm going to have this series on Rockfin, the Bible and the proletarian movement. So 
look, some people on these streams love to talk about religion. and Some people really don't. And I respect that. I want people that don't like religion to be free to come on these streams. And I want people to do these streams. I'm going to, I'm going to do a separate series, the Bible and the proletarian movement. So if you really want to get into this stuff with a great amount of depth, uh, that's where you should go. All right. Um, um, all right. Uh, someone said the court sent their grandpa to Vietnam for having weed. Yeah, that was really common. At one point, if you were arrested for a crime, uh, the, the judge would give you uh, the option of going into the military rather than doing jail time. That was a very common thing that used to happen. I think it still happens. I think, you know, I think it happens, right? Still, I think sometimes the courts, especially for younger men, uh, like, you know, like 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, the judge will actually give them the option of going to the military. Um, you know, so there you go. Um, Joe Rogan outstripping mainstream media. Um, yeah, Joe Rogan, uh, he puts forward a, a vaguely anti-establishment perspective. He promotes drug use, which I vehemently disagree with. He promotes hallucinogen. That's, that's not good. He promotes like libertarian stuff, but he's questioning some of what the mainstream media is saying. He's got questions and I obviously don't endorse what he says, but the fact that he's popular shows that a lot of Americans don't trust mainstream media. So there you go. All right. Tuck, Tucker Carlton's, Carlson's left flirtations. Okay. Well, there's a couple things you have to remember about Couple things. So first of all, first things first, it's pretty clear that synthetic leftism is becoming the party line in the United States, right? The White House is woke. Kamala Harris is woke. CNN is woke. MSNBC is woke. So this fake synthetic leftism that is anti-historical progress, that is full of woke mobs, that hate working people, uh, that that wants you know to foment chaos in the streets, wants to drive down living standards. The disgusting, vulgar movement that has nothing to do with socialism and communism. The synthetic left, the drug-using counterculture, identity politics, disgusting countergang of the ruling class, the cancel culture obsessed woke mobs. They are the ruling party line. Okay? That's what the ruling class is doing. This is their new form of fascism, right? You know, instead of doing regular fascism, they figured, okay, we'll try to have some like weird, this is their Bonapartist movement to try and control US society. This is their counter gang that they've built up, synthetic leftism, right? Now, because that's the ruling party line, it's taking the place of neoconservatism. For years, neoconservatism, evangelical Christians, and the neocon right wing were kind of the core that held U.S. society together. It was the main like political tendency the ruling class was promoting. Now the ruling class is promoting wokeism as the main trend to hold U.S. society together. So you'll remember during the time when neoconservatism was the main trend uh, among the ruling class, uh, you know there was opposition to it. Right? There's always going to be opposition. And I remember the, during the Bush years when neoconservatism was the main you know, you know, current that the ruling class was promoting. Um, what they did was that, you know, there were libertarians who were against neoconservatives, like Alex Jones, like uh, antiwar.com. And those people were very much courted by the left. Air America used to interview them all the time, even though they weren't left wing, they were right wing libertarians. They were, they were John Birch Society people, but they were against what the neocons were doing. So they were kind of treated as an ally by the left. Um, I'm trying to think of other examples, right? Uh, the anti-war protests, you know, the Libertarian Party would be there. Uh, in Cleveland, there was a guy called Wacko Macko. 
And he was a, he was, he called himself a libertarian, but he was a neo-Nazi. I mean, he was a Holocaust denier and he would show up at anti-war protests, pass out his leaflets, you know, Bush is violating the constitution, vote for the libertarian party. He was a, he was a white supremacist. He was a Holocaust denier, uh, fringe candidate in Cleveland politics. He would come to all the left-wing protests. The RCP would call a rally. He would show up and hand out his leaflets. Why? He was against what the neocons were doing. Um, you know, and so that happens. Um, you know, in U.S. society, you tend to have the current that's being promoted by the ruling class and the opposition. Right now, the synthetic left is the new neocons, right? Now, instead of getting people to, you know, wave their arms at evangelical churches and vote for Bush and join the military, now people wave their arms at woke rallies and protest against China because it's racist to Uyghurs or something like that, right? This is the new trend of the ruling class. So these people, like Tucker Carlson, Tucker Carlson is against that trend. Um, and he's on Fox News. So he is going to, you know, Jimmy Dore is against the woke left. I'm against the woke left. Tucker Carlson is also against the woke left. So he is going to give common ground and voice to people that are also against the establishment. His ideology is certainly not a left one, right? He's a right winger. He's an isolationist, but he's more anti-war. And Jimmy Dore is anti-war. And Jackson Hinkle's anti-war, and I'm anti-war. Max Blumenthal's anti-war. So there's some overlap. Uh, you know, he is, uh, he is, you know, got kind of a, I think, more of a right-wing populist, kind of Catholic localist uh, worldview, right? That he doesn't trust big corporations. Kind of like Pat Buchanan, an American conservative. So because of that, uh, you know, leftists, legit leftists that aren't part of the wokeism that, that feel that way, they're also going to be some overlap. And I don't believe, I don't believe that anybody, anybody should decline a platform. If Fox News wanted to have me on and I could arrange it, I would do it, right? Because to get access to that millions of people, I would do it, right? I don't agree with Fox, but if I can go on CNN, I, if I can go on RT, I can go on Fox, you know? I, and, and we need to be, we never need to turn down any, um, we never need to turn down any opportunity to speak to the masses. We never need to turn down any opportunity to speak to the masses. I mean, if the masses are going to hear you, you never, you never put up any unnecessary barricade between yourself and the masses of people. So if Tucker wants to have me on or have Jimmy Dore on or whatever, I have no problem with that. And there's going to be some overlap. Tucker said the truth about Russia. Good for him. Tucker has said things about big corporations, how they affect the country. Good for him. When he talks about immigrants, the way he talks about them is abominable. Uh, and the way, you know, the way he's defended a lot of free market stuff is abominable. His anti-China hysteria is, is awful. So, but there is, you know, this is the period that we're living. In. That's what you need to remember. The woke cult is the, the main current that U.S. imperialism is fomenting now. So, unfortunately, U.S. politics is going to be kind of polarized around, are you for them, are you against them? And that's going to put people that are against them in similar categories. But that doesn't mean that we should shed our ideology, right? We need to stand firm in our principles. You know, when the left was the main of opposition and the neocons were the opposition, a lot of these forces, like the Workers' World Party, they just went along with whatever the, the, the left was saying, whatever was trendy on the left, because it's against the wokes. Well, if we did that now, and if we said, okay, we're against the wokes, so we're just going to do whatever is trendy on the right, then we would end up supporting racist anti-immigrant policies. We'd end up supporting police brutality and mass incarceration. We'd end up supporting uh, you know, anti-immigrant bigotry. We can't do that. We have our beliefs, we know what our beliefs are, and we will go wherever we need to go to get those beliefs to the masses. 
but we hold on to our beliefs. Our beliefs are our beliefs, right? And we don't adopt the right wing's beliefs. We don't do that. But if the right wing wants to have a conversation with us about foreign policy, we'll do it, right? If the left wants to have a conversation with us about foreign policy, we'll do it. I, I've gone on Bosch before. I hate Bosch. I went on a stream, though, to debate him, right? And that we should never put up any unnecessary barricade between ourselves and the masses. We have to be strategic. You have to make the decision. And thank you, Anna Mars, for the, the tip. I really appreciate it. Telltale sign of thinking a nuanced person is never turning down an opportunity to get your message out. Thank you, Anna. And I couldn't agree more. Um, and that is correct. Um, you know, and um, there you go. But yeah, um, we got to hold firm in our beliefs, but just, you know, go wherever the masses are. This is a mistake. At Occupy Wall Street, I was part of Occupy Wall Street, um, but the group I was in should have gone there to promote communism more. Uh, instead, they just kind of went along with it. They were hoping that they could somehow maneuver into setting up the cage and the permits and be the leaders of, of Occupy Wall Street. Well, instead of doing that, they should have gone to Occupy Wall Street and convinced people to be communists. And instead of just going to Occupy Wall Street, we should have gone to the Tea Party. We should have gone to the Tea Party and gone into the Tea Party and tried to convince the people there to be communists. And, you know, we should have, we should, you should go to Black Lives Matter rallies and try to convince the people to be, to be communists. The Communist Manifesto, I'll read it to you again. Great, great part of having a laptop here. What does the Communist Manifesto say? And I quote this many times, and this needs to be, this, this is a very, very important thing in the Communist Manifesto that nobody pays any attention to. But in the final section of the Communist Manifesto, what does it say? What does it say? In short, communists everywhere Support every revolutionary movement against the existing social and political order of things. In all these movements, they bring to the front as the leading question in each, the property question, no matter what its degree of development at the time. And finally, they labor everywhere for the union and agreement of democratic parties in all countries. The communists disdain to conceal their views and aims. They openly declare that their ends can be attained only by the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. Let the ruling classes tremble at the communist revolution. The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains, and they have the world to win. Workers of the world unite. That is how the Communist Manifesto ends. Now, let's, let's go over that. Let's break it down here. I want, I want you to understand this, right? Someone else asked me to quote uh, Marx and Engels later. Um, and so. We'll do that. And so let's just break this down. In short, communists everywhere support every revolutionary movement against the existing social order of things. Now, what does it say there? Does it say communists everywhere support every revolution against the existing social borders of things as long as it's uh, woke? No. Do communists support every revolutionary movement against the existing order of things as long as the people involved aren't racist? No. Do communists support every revolutionary movement against the existing social order of things as long as the people involved are politically correct and left-wing and liberal? No, that's not what it says. It's not what it says. It says communists support every revolutionary movement against the existing social order and political things. Every, period. If people are against the system, if people are at odds with the capitalist system for any reason, because they think their taxes are too high, because they, you know, they're mad about the economy, because they don't like vaccine mandates, whatever it is, wherever, wherever people are at odds with the system, the communists must go there. But what do they do when they get there? In all these movements, they bring to the front as the leading question in each, the property question, 
no matter what its degree of development at the time. So what does that say? That says, well, if it's a liberal movement, you just go to it and pretend to support it. No. It says, oh, if it's a right-wing movement, you don't go there at all. No, it goes to these movements and brings to the front the leading question, which is the property question. Meaning, if people are protesting against the system, your job isn't to go there and pretend to support it. Your job is not to ignore it if it's right-wing. If people are at odds with the capitalist system, your job as a communist is to go there and convince those people to be communists. Raise the property question. You got to go there and say to the people, you mad your taxes are too high? It's because of capitalism. You mad about Wall Street, 99% and 1%? It's because of capitalism. Wherever the people are in motion, you go to them and you win them to communism. And you don't abandon communism and tail after the liberals and you don't ignore it if people are right wing. Wherever the people are in a confrontation with the existing social order, it is the absolute duty of communists to go there and win them. And why does it say, no matter what its degree of development at the time? Meaning that a lot of times there are people rebelling against the system who are not at all class conscious. That's what that means. That is exactly what it means. He was talking about the Tea Party when he wrote this. No matter what the degree, go to the Tea Party. And it's going to be really hard to get those people who have a sign that say Obama is a communist and, and China is taking over America. You have to find a way to talk to those people. It's not easy. It's a tough job. But no matter what degree of development at the time, meaning no matter how backward these people are, no matter how racist these people are, no matter how confused these people are, no matter how much these people don't want to hear it, no matter how difficult it is, no matter what of its degree of development at the time, no matter what, no matter what the degree of development at the time, you bring, the, you find a way, you find a way to go where the people are in motion in rebellion against the existing order of things. And no matter what, you find a way to bring the property question to the front as the leading question. That is your duty, right? That is what it says. And furthermore, what does it say? It says the communists disdain to conceal their views and aims, meaning that they don't hide what they stand for. They don't hide what they stand for. They don't pretend you know, they, they, don't, they, don't, they don't pretend, oh, we're just liberals just like you. Oh, communists, we're not communists. We're just liberals just like you. Now let us organize the protest cage. No. Communists disdain, meaning they try to never conceal their views. Never do they try to conceal their views. That is the duty of communists. So you asked me for my answer, and I just gave you that answer, right? Um, so, yes, anywhere we can reach the masses, we got to reach them. All right. How important is it to be able to relate to people if you want to win them to socialism? More important than anything else. If, people, if you can't relate to people, if you can't understand how they're suffering, you know, one of the most important things you have to do is when you're going to people, you have to listen to them. You can't just talk at them. You have to listen to them. You have to hear them. When you go and you talk to people, one of the first things is to hear what they are saying. You know? You're going to a group of working people that are, are, you know, trying to convince them to become socialists. You need to listen to them first. What makes you angry about capitalism? Why are you upset? You need to find out what their grievances are and really listen to them. And then once you've heard them, you can explain based on what they feel why socialism is the answer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely.
Absolutely. All right. Um, Middle America was the person of the year in 1968. You bet it was. You bet it was. Uh, and that was that was the whole thing. 1968, you know, the election with Richard Nixon won. Uh, you know, he stood for the silent majority. That was the beginning of neoconservatism, the right wing populism, the neocons. They, they were getting going there. Right. It was that right wing populism. Um, you know, against, you know, portraying the left as hippies, the left is, is hippies, the left is black people, but average Americans, average Americans are, you know, don't want to hear it. Oh, David Fox says spot on. It's refreshing to hear. Well, there you go, David. I'm glad. Well, I, it can't be said enough. It can't be said enough. Um, you know, there you go. But um, there you go. Um, yeah, 19... You know, that year, that was the beginning of the neoconservative movement, right-wing populism, and Oki from Muskogee that I talked about in my stream, and Richard Nixon fighting for the silent majority. Um, so there you go. Um, Canadian truckers protest. I support it, right? You know, if these truckers, if the working workers on the job are saying they don't want to get vaccinated, and they're tired of the mandate, you know, again, I'm not a medical expert, and I'm not going to give any medical information and say they're medically correct. But I support the right of workers to say, you know what, I don't want this. And if you're a communist and you can't respect the right of workers, the right of thousands of workers, truckers to come together and say, you know what, we don't want what our employers and our government are forcing us to do, uh, you're not worthy of the name communist. I'm sorry, you can disagree with them. You can say, well, medically, I think they should get vaccinated. And, you know, I'm not against vaccinations and I'm not disputing anything medical here. But look, if a group of workers, truck drivers, you know, come together and say, we don't want to get vaccinated. Um, the ruling class, you know, should be forced back. And I like to see workers in motion. And yes, the far right has co-opted these protests. Of course they have, because, because the far right are the only people that, that, that listen to the workers now. Synthetic left hates the workers. But again, what should we be doing? We should be going to those demonstrations. And as hard as it might be, and as uncomfortable as it might be, you got to win them socialism. That's your job. And if you, that, that's your job. And I mean, you may not want to do that, but we've got to find a way to win them to socialism. You know, Dust James is a trucker. Go and listen to what Duck J Dust James, himself a trucker, a Marxist Leninist truck driver, has to say about it, right? Um, you know, you know, it's not easy. It's not going to be easy. No one ever said this was going to be easy. But one of the biggest ways that communists fall into the trap of revisionism is they take the easy way out. They take the easy way out. They try, they try to do something other than what they're supposed to do. And when you do that, the results are not good. Go and check out what Dust James has said about it. He can speak about it very eloquently. Very eloquently. All right. Cite your definitions of socialism, Marx and Engels. Well, very good. Well, we'll do that right now. First, since we already have the Communist Manifesto open, since we already have the Communist Manifesto open, we'll read the Communist Manifesto. Cite your definitions of socialism. This is from Chapter 2 of the Communist Manifesto. Uh, this is the... Uh, this is the section called Proletarians and Communists, right? This is what it says. The proletariat will use its political supremacy to wrest by degree all capital from the bourgeoisie to centralize all instruments of production into the hands of the state, the proletariat organized as the ruling class, and to increase the total productive forces as rapidly as possible. That's the Communist Manifesto. The, the proletariat will use its political supremacy. Oh, Marxism's got nothing to do with the government, Caleb. It's just independent worker cooperatives. Shut up. 
Shut up. Political supremacy. What is political supremacy? That would be government supremacy. So the proletariat will use its political supremacy. It will take control of the government to wrest by degree all capital from the bourgeoisie. Oh, but it, it, China has a market sector. It can't be socialist. You have to have everything nationalized to be socialist, Caleb. By degree, meaning not all at once, but by degree, all capital from the bourgeoisie, to centralize. What does centralize mean? All instruments of production in the hands of the state. Oh, Marx didn't want a planned economy. Lenin invented that. I, I watched the Thoughts Line video. Oh, oh, oh. Centralize, <clears throat> centralize all instruments of production into the hands of the state. Proletariat organizes the ruling class and to increase the productive forces as rapidly as increase. We, the whole point of socialism is to make everyone poor. Capitalism wants growth. Oh, we want to make everyone poor so it's good for Mother Earth. We, we want to have everyone to have less stuff. No, to increase the total productive forces as rapidly as possible. That is the Communist Manifesto, my friend. Now, I can keep reading from the Communist Manifesto. Of course, in the beginning, this cannot be affected except by despotic means and the inroads of the rights of private property and on the conditions of bourgeois production by means of measures, therefore, which all appear economically insufficient and untenable, but which in the course of the movement outstrip themselves, necessitate further inroads upon the social order and unavoidable as a means of, a sta of entirely revolutionary mode of production. Now, what's the next sentence here? <clears throat> These measures will, of course, be different in different countries. Oh, we can't have socialism with American characteristics, Caleb. That's racist. Oh, we can't do that. Everything American must be destroyed. Oh, you want a uniquely American form of socialism. That's racist. They will be different in different countries. Wow. So does that mean that like in China, they're going to have socialism with Chinese characteristics? And in Vietnam, they're going to have socialism with Vietnamese characteristics. And in Cuba, they're going to have socialism with Cuban characteristics. And in Canada, they're going to have socialism with Canadian characteristics. And geez, that might mean that since it's going to be different in different countries, hmm, would that mean that maybe socialism in the United States might be unique to the United States? Does that mean that maybe Caleb isn't the grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan because he wants socialism with American characteristics? Who knew? But you said Marx and Engels. So that's that. That is Marx. And now we'll pull up Frederick Engels. Socialism, utopian and scientific. And we'll do Lenin while we're at it. Why not? Right. Well, you said Marx and Engels. Now we'll do Lenin. Historical materialism. All right. I, I, I love this. Right. So we're going to Frederick Engels. Right. Frederick Engels, Socialism, Utopian, and Scientific. If my laptop will let me scroll down fast enough. Oh, my God. All right, here we go. All right. The proletarian revolution. The solution of the contradictions. The proletariat seizes the public power. The public power? But Caleb, socialism has nothing to do with the government. The proletariat seizes the public power. 
and by means of this transforms the socialized production, slipping in the hands of the bourgeoisie into public property. Oh, that means, you know, everyone knows that what every individual worker cooperative will compete with every other individual. No, no, no. They seize the public power, the government, and they transform the socialized means of production into public property, not individual worker cooperatives competing with each other. I mean, it's like, how do these people lie so much? These, these, these idiots, I mean, they just, they lie, they lie, they lie. I mean, it's like, it's, it's pretty clear what he's saying. By this act, the proletariat frees the means of production from the character of capital they have thus foreborn and gives their socialized character complete freedom to work itself out. Socialized production upon a predetermined plan becomes henceforth possible. Socialized production upon a predetermined plan. Now, what does predetermined plan mean? Does that mean every worker co-op does whatever it wants and competes with every other worker co-op and it's this beautiful worker cooperative democracy and we're libertarian socialists and we're happy, happy socialists and socialism has nothing to do with the government and we're all smoking weed in the woods? No. Socialized production upon a predetermined plan, a central plan, instruments centralized in the hands of the state. Five-year plans, Stalin, China. And these people just lie. I mean, I mean, this it's it's like this is so obvious what it says here. Socialized production upon a predetermined plan, planned economy, eliminating the anarchy of production becomes henceforth possible. The development of production makes the existence of classes in society thenceforth an anachronism. Oh, oh, wait a second. The development of production makes the existence of different classes thenceforth an anachronism. So that means the government divides up everything absolutely equal and there's no income, no, income inequality. No, no, no. That means that if, if somebody has more money than somebody else, it's not really socialist because no, it says the development of production, the development of production makes class society an anachronism, meaning that because abundance emerges because you have a centralized planned economy, inequality starts to fade away. doesn't mean forced equality. It means the development of production, not government mandates, not government orders, not the government getting up there and declaring everyone to be equal, but the development of production because the productive forces rise, inequality and social hierarchies start to fade away. This is, I mean, this is what Deng Xiaoping was saying. So poverty is not socialism, but to be rich is glorious. The development of production Increasing living standards leads to inequality fading away. In proportion, as anarchy and social production vanishes, anarchy vanishes? But I thought Marx was an anarchist. He would want anarchism. Oh, wow. In proportion, as social production and anarchy vanishes, the political authority of the state dies out. Man, at last, the master of his own social organization, becomes the lord over nature his own master, free. Wow, the, the anarchy and social production vanishes, meaning the more centralized and planned our economy is, the more rationally organized our economy is, the state starts to fade away. Man, at last the master of his own form of social organization, becomes at the same time lord over nature. Oh, but I thought socialism was about making nature in charge again. It was about getting rid of human beings and their drive to advance. No. 
It's the opposite. It's the triumph of humans over nature. Right? This has probably been asked, what would you say is the difference between communism and socialism? Yes, we're, we're getting to that. His own master, free. So, yeah, that's Marx and Engels. But while we're at it, why don't we get Lenin in the State and Revolution? Another very important book. Right? So we're pulling up Lenin and the State and Revolution. Right? Pulling up first chapter of the State and Revolution by Engels. Right? Or no, not the first chapter. We'll get to the economic basis of the withering away of the state. The first phase of communist society. This is what Lenin says. The first phase of communism is called socialism. Right? The means of production are no longer the private property of individuals. The means of production belong to the whole of society. Every member of society performing a certain part of socially necessary work receives a certificate from society to the fact that he has done a certain amount of work. With this certificate, he receives from public store or consumer goods a corresponding amount of products. After a deduction is made for the amount of labor which goes into the public fund, every worker therefore receives from society what he has given to it. Right? That's, that's, you know, the first phase of communism cannot yet provide justice and equality. Differences and unjust differences in wealth will still persist, but the exploitation of man by man has become impossible because it will be impossible to seize the means of production, the factories, machines, and land, and make them private property. So in the first phase of communism, therefore, cannot provide justice and equality. Differences and unjust differences in wealth will still persist, but the exploitation of man by man becomes impossible because it is, is impossible to seize the means of production, the factories, mines, and machines, and land, and make them private property. With the state in the hands of the proletariat, they'll no longer be able to expropriate the means of production. Oh, is there a super chat that I missed? Um, did I miss a super chat? Um, uh, going up, going up, going up, going up, going up, going up. Sorry, like when I'm not looking directly at the thing. Um, are there ways to progress local communities towards socialism, not using the name, using local politics. All right, um, writing it down. Ways to progress local communities toward socialism using local politics, not using the name. Um, there you go. Um, and the difference between socialism and communism, I mean, I'll just explain what I just read. Uh, socialism is when the means of production no longer function according to profits. Socialism is a society where the banks, factories, and industries and the centers of economic power are publicly owned. That's the first phase of communism or socialism. Communism is the higher stage. It's when so much abundance has been created that the state withers away. And, you know, people kind of just take what they need and, and do what they feel like doing. It's a society with so much wealth and abundance that inequality breaks down, that the government fades away. That's the higher stage of communism. Socialism is when the means of production are controlled by the people. That's the difference. Between the two. Um, are there ways to progress local communities towards? So oh, oh, we got both of them. All right, very good. All right, I, I'm going to answer that. I'm going to answer that question. All right. So I cited that. Please do Jimmy Carter accent. You know, I'm not. 
See, some, in the past, people have asked me to sing a song, and I don't do that. I break into song when it's part of the points I'm making, um, you know, uh, and, you know, I will, I will do an accent when it's part of the point I'm making, but I'm not a dancing monkey. Uh, I'm, I'm not. I'm not a dancing monkey. Uh, I'm not a. I'm not a a, 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 a trick pony. I'm not a. Uh, I'm not a, a. You know. I'm not. This isn't a dog show. So if you want me to, if you want me to sing a song. Uh, if it's related to a point I'm making, I might sing it. If you want me to do an impression or an accent, it needs to be related to something I'm doing. But I don't. I don't perform on command, right? You know. If you if you send me a super chat and say bark like a dog, I'm not going to bark like a dog. Okay. Uh, I have standards, right? I really do. So, you know, I know you probably didn't mean anything offensive by asking that, but that's not how we roll here. If you have a question and, you know, through the process of answering it, I need to talk like Jimmy Carter, fine. But, uh, you know, it's not how we roll here. I don't, I don't, I'm not on here to sing songs and I'm not on here to do funny accents on demand. It's not how it works. Um, you know, not how it works. Um, but anyhow, uh, Argentina getting IMF restructuring. The IMF has ruined Argentina. I mean, it's devastated Argentina. Um, it's made things in Argentina so bad. Um, and the government of Macri with IMF, I mean, it's like the record of the IMF around the world and their privatizations and neoliberal reforms, country after country after country after country after country, they have wrecked the country. So, you know, I'm really disappointed to see that's happening to Argentina. All right. Placing the struggles of the oppressed first to unite the proletariat. Well, a great example of that uh, is, is how the Communist Party fought racism um, in the labor movement, right? It used to be that when there was a strike in mines or factories, when there was a strike, um, when there was a strike, uh, what would happen was the, uh, the, the black community would operate as scab labor. Why? Because the unions were racist. Most of the American Federation of Labor Unions were whites only. They were racist unions. And so when there was a strike, the company would hire black people to replace the, the workers. Um, and in San Francisco, that's what would happen. When the dock workers would go on strike, um, they would hire black people to work on the docks because the dock workers unions were racist. But in 1934, the Communist Party led the great strike of 1934, the San Francisco dock workers strike, which shut down San Francisco. And it was successful because before the strike, the Communist Party went to all the black churches in town and met with the ministers and made clear that one of the demands of the strike was that black workers be hired to work on the docks. And they put the demand of black workers that they get hired to be dock workers full time. They put that demand. They put that demand in their strike. And because of that, when the strike happened, the black community didn't scab on the strike. They supported it. Um, that was showed that putting the needs of the oppressed first helped all workers. Great example of that. Um, another example is uh, 1974 in Detroit. There was what they called Wildcat Summer. And this was black workers in Detroit who felt like the union wasn't recognizing their demands. They felt like the United Auto Workers Union, the UAW, they felt like it wasn't paying attention to the needs of the black workers. So they formed a black faction of the UAW called DRUM, the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement, DRUM. Um, it was called DRUM. And DRUM was this black faction of the auto workers union. But DRUM didn't just talk about black issues. 
They talked about issues that affected all the workers in the plants. And when they started calling walkouts in 1974, it started with Drum, with the black workers who organized this revolutionary faction of the UAW. But pretty soon it spread to the white workers as well. The white workers were walking off the job. Um, you read about Wildcat Summer and that, yes, by putting the needs of oppressed groups, black people, women, the LGBT community, by, by raising their demands, you can unify the entire class. Um, and that's something that's been shown repeatedly in struggles. But when, when, you know, the white, when, when white workers had whites only unions, the labor movement was weak. It was weak because the working class was divided. But when you bring people together, you bring people together, put the needs of the oppressed first, uh, suddenly the working class can be unified and you can have real power in the labor movement. Uh, Iraqi history, 1968 onward. I am going to defer to Flame of Liberation and Nick. Nick of Flame of Liberation, uh, he has a great YouTube channel. He gets into that. I don't know my Iraqi history and my history of Ba'ath socialism in Iraq very well. Um, so you're going to have to look into what Flame of Liberation has said. Um, I'm going to defer to him. Ways to progress local communities towards socialism, using local politics and not using the name. Uh, use the demands, right? You can raise the property question by using the demands. Maybe you don't say socialism, but you say, you know, what if, what if banking were controlled by the community? What if oil was controlled by the community? Talk about Fusion City. Uh, you know, talk about um, talk about the four point plan. You know, talk about the Sandino Zapata Economic Corridor by bringing forward programs. Um, you know, programmatic demands. Uh, you know that that would change property relations. That's a way of bringing forward the property question without actually um, you know saying socialism. Uh, but you're going to have to say socialism, and you need to just get used to it. Um, but sometimes by bringing forward the demands by saying why don't we own the profits from the oil and gas, that can be a way of of bringing forward if you just put forward the demands. So that's very important. All right, folks, it's been fun. And we'll be back on at 10 p.m. Uh, with Daniel Burke uh, to chat about recent events with Daniel Burke of the Schiller Institute. So, you know, stay tuned for the next one. A new upsurge in the struggle against U.S. imperialism is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression. But the people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. While the danger of a new world war still exists, the people of all countries must get prepared. Revolution is the main trend in the world today. And while the danger of a new world war still exists, the people of all countries must get prepared. Revolution is the main trend in the world today. Good night.